On this being the first Sunday of uh, the month of July, we had scheduled this as one of the months we would have an open forum discussion in our uh, Sunday school class, and uh, that means you have the opportunity to direct our class's discussion in whatever way you choose in terms of questions you might raise, concerns you might have, and the only thing that I would say is that if it's leading us down a path that is not unto edification, I might say time out, or I might say we'll put this off for another time, but if it's something that will move us uh, some way into God's word or help us to come to grips with some aspect of biblical teaching or some aspect of how the Bible relates to us as his people, now that's certainly something that ought to, can be unto edification and we'll look to entertain that within the sphere of our knowledge and uh, not go to exceed uh, the limits of what we know. So, um, anybody come this morning with a question you'd like to raise in our open forum this morning? You have something, Tim? Yes. Go right ahead. In our book study on the, uh, on the forgotten fear, we came to a... We're at the... Not at the place. We studied that... You know, there's, there's a fear of God for the un, for the unsaved, which has to do with the fear of dread. And then uh, for the saved, it's uh, it comes that has different aspects to it. We were talking about how that fear of God was existing in the Lord Jesus. You know, uh, like what dimensions? You know, was in, in obedience and reverence to God. But was there was there a, a sense of uh, of uh, of a dread from this, not dread, but a sense of, you know, like, uh, you know, like when the disciples fell uh, at the transfiguration, or, or Isaiah, you know, woe is me. Uh, he, he, they were explaining that they were sinful yeah. people, but was that in any way related to our Lord in the sense that he was a sin bearer? Yeah. Um, well, I think we can overthink the matter. Uh, I think the whole question of the fear of God is a reaction to the presence of God. And so the reaction that people would have to the presence of God really depends on where they are. What they're, you know, if, um, if I saw, you know, some cops walk in the beat and uh, walk past them, um, I would greet them, good morning, officers. <laughs> but if I just... Um, pilfered something from a local store or was breaking and entering in somebody's house and those two cops would come down, my reaction would be different. It's not that they become any different than they are, but uh, where I stand with respect to them would be different. And so hence there would be, I would always have a fear of the police because they, uh, they have weapons and um, they are peace officers that exist for the purposes of the good of the community. So you have a healthy regard for them. And fear in that sense would be a healthy regard for them. A healthy respect for them. So when they ask you to do something, you do it. They say pull over, you pull over when you see the light. I'm amazed. It's been a really long time since that happened to me. Back in the day when I was driving the taxi cab, I would see that light go on quite a bit. So one of the benefits of giving up cab driving is my, my driving record is pristine. It's crystal clear. But when you see the cop pull you over, you have respect for them and regard for them and you cooperate with them. So it's just a question of how you relate to someone in the real world in terms of what is the appropriate reaction and response. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, 
and they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, that was something that led them to flee from God's presence. Why? They were naked and they knew it. And the sense of shame was upon them. And so they fled from the presence of the Lord. Uh, If the uh, child has been um, taking something out of the cookie jar and um, mom comes into the room and he has the cookie behind his back looking to hide it from the, and then it's exposed the child has a sense of shame in the presence of the, the parent because as part of that regard is wanting to please those that are in proper authority over us wanting to um, honor them uh, again, it's a question of regard, respect for rightful authority. God is the rightful authority over us, and we come to Him in our shame, and we slink back. And you know, we uh, you know, you have the, the proud Pharisee that comes strutting into the presence of the of the Lord in, in the temple, and uh, he prays thus with himself. And the point is, God was not in all of his thoughts. The um, the publican uh, stood far off. <laughs> He didn't even feel any sense of right to come near to the presence of God. He's gripped with the reality of his sin and shame. And he cries, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And of course he goes to his house forgiven and then you come back to the temple and you know you're welcome. You know you have access. <clears throat> so it's a question of where we stand with relationship to God. Um, and to me, the, one of the real pivotal passages that determine my, my understanding of the fear of God is in the book of Leviticus, where in chapter 19 it, it speaks about, well, let's turn there, Leviticus 19. I've showed you this before, I know, but it always repays to revisit these texts. I think this is a, a vital one. Again, I don't think you should think of the fear of God in terms of uh, a morbid dread. Um, again, even, even an unconverted person is still bidden to find mercy and find help uh, with God um, if only they would turn and believe. Um, and so you don't want to present to them, well, you know, God's out to get you, God's out to kill you, God's out to destroy you, God's out to send you to hell. You know, hell is a, is a condition that is a reality, but it's not something that is something God delights in. Again, the scripture tells us it's... Um, um, that mercy is his delight. Mercy is his delight. It never says judgment is God's delight. It never says that. It never says wrath is his delight. It never says that. It says mercy is his delight. And Isaiah seems to speak about the judgment of God will come as being part of what he calls God's strange work. It's a strange work. It's something that really shouldn't be, but because of sin it is. But in chapter 19, you have, um, this is called the Holiness Code. Those who like to put titles to places in the scripture. This is called the Holiness Code um, because it, um, it uh, has that word, uh, be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. That begins the section in verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. Again, this comes after the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. It comes after. Um, it comes within the, the promises that God will be among them. Uh, we're going to see that in Second Corinthians in chapter six, that God says, "I will walk among you, and um, uh, I will be your people. You will be my people, and I will be your God." Let me see if I could find that real quick. Um, it's here in uh, chapter nineteen. 
I'm sorry, it's chapter 26. Never mind. Wrong, wrong chapter. Chapter 26 contains that just before the curses and the blessings. But here in um, chapter 19, this is the call to holiness. This is the call to be holy, for the Lord your God uh, is holy. And um, part of the things that are commanded to do, uh, the people are commanded to do, uh, sometimes it says, I am the Lord. That's the reason you should do this. Or I am the Lord your God. That's the reason you should do this. And um, but sometimes it's also um, that you should fear your God. You should fear your God. And um, there's a couple of places here where it speaks about uh, responsibility um, with regard to the deaf and with regard to the blind. Um, let me just find those passages. Uh, there it is in verse uh, 13. It says, you should not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. James uh, picks up on that theme in James chapter 5 in the New Testament. Then it says, you should not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. Now, again, it's not a question that you're going to you're going to have, at least in terms of public justice, any uh, necessary um, ramifications for cursing the deaf because the deaf don't hear. And so you can say what you want in the presence of a deaf person, and that deaf person is never going to get outraged and say, how dare you say that to me? The deaf person didn't hear you say it to him. But you shall fear the Lord your God. That's the motivation even if you're not in the presence of any other human being that would say, you know, you ought not to be so unkind. Or, but you're in the presence of the God of heaven and earth. And it's his eye you should be concerned about. It's his ears you should be concerned not to offend. And so um, I think the fact that the command not to curse the deaf is followed by, but you shall fear the Lord your God, it gives us some insight as to what the fear of God is. The fear of God is that which will regulate our conduct, not so much because, well, the cop on the street is going to arrest us, or the deaf person is going to get mad at us, or the public is going to get outraged at us, but because God hears and sees and knows your conduct. So that's why you don't curse the deaf, and that's why you don't put a stumbling block before the blind, and that's why you have your conduct regulated by God's law, because you live in God's presence. And living in God's presence, walking before, uh, as Scripture oftentimes speaks of it, his face, walk before me and be perfect, is what God said to Abraham. And that idea of walk before me is to walk before my face. I'm trying to think of the Hebrew, but it has the word penei, which is, means the face. Lifne penei, I think it is. Walk before my face is the Hebrew. You walk before the face of God. And so you factor God in. And that's what regulates your, 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 your conduct. It regulates your attitude. It regulates uh, your life. That's what it means to live in the fear of God, is to live before the face of God. So Jesus feared the Lord. The Spirit of, of, of God was upon him. The spirit of the fear of the Lord. That's in uh, Isaiah chapter 11. Let's just turn there. This is probably why you raised the question. Uh, did the book go into Isaiah 11? This portrait of Jesus. Um, the sevenfold aspect of the spirit being upon uh, the, this, uh, the Davidic king. This uh, 
one who is the shoot that comes forth from the stump of Jesse in verse 1 again Jesse was David's father and uh, the shoot that comes forth the stump is a picture of the house of David fallen it's been it's been someone's taken the axe to it and it's fallen and all you got left is a stump because again with the coming of the Babylonians not so much in Isaiah's day there were still Davidic kings upon the throne but Isaiah does envision at least the book of Isaiah does envision the Babylonian uh, captivity and it's interesting it never describes the Babylonian captivity it never describes the destruction of the city but it assumes it. It assumes that it will happen. That the people will be taken captive into Babylon. And then they will, re- they will return. And so um, there's hope. And uh, yet when they did return from Babylonian captivity, there never was another Davidic king upon the throne. In fact, the only Davidic king that has any claims upon a throne that ought to be considered is the claim of Jesus, the son of David to the throne of the universe that Jesus was exalted and set at the right hand of the majesty on high and God said to him uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet and, and that's what Isaiah is envisioning he's envisioning the, the coming of uh, the messianic king he's envisioning the coming of the Davidic king who's the true Davidic king and to do that he doesn't just say he's the son of David he goes back to Jesse, <laughs> David's father. So you have to get a new David born. And so he goes back to Jesse. This is really, again, I think that's really saying that it's not so much the biological lineage that comes from David, although Jesus did qualify in that account because of the genealogies of Matthew and of Luke. But I think the point of it is that something greater is found here. It's by the decree of God. God says, sit at my right hand. God sets his king upon his holy hill of Zion. God is the one who sets forth uh, the king, just as he set forth David, the son of Jesse. There's going to be a new um, son of Jesse that's going to come, and uh, it'll be that shoot out of the stump. The fallen tree is, has life in it yet, and the shoot will come forth and bear fruit from his roots. Uh, um, he shall bear fruit, and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him and then there's delineated aspects of the spirit that rests upon him being the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and of might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh and it's that fear of Yahweh that's the the thing that's followed up his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh we don't tend to put those two things together the delight of the fear of God I think Jerry Bridges wrote a book, a very good book, uh, with that title, Delighting in the Fear of God. You don't usually think in those terms. But Jesus delighted in the fear of God. Because again, the fear of God is what I'm trying to tell you that it is. It's that awareness of the presence of God. It's walking before the the face of God. It's seeking to bring uh, your thought and attitude and um, all of life captive to his obedience as you you walk before him and so I think it has everything to do with the presence of God which is what the spirit of God brings the spirit of God brings the presence of God uh, to the people of God and the presence of God um, even to the uh, the God man Christ Jesus uh, the spirit mediates divine presence and in mediating divine presence there is that f- delight the delight 
in the fear of the Lord. So don't let anybody ever tell you the fear of the Lord means you've got to be um, beaten down. And you've got to be hollered at and yelled at and have your sins exposed and all the rest. Because if you're fearing God in terms of walking before his face, your sins are exposed. You don't need a preacher to yell at you. You don't need a preacher to beat you down. There's the reality of the eye of God and the face of God and the presence of God. Um, that does far more to regulate and that's not saying preachers shouldn't preach about sin but it's just saying preachers shouldn't seek to beat down people but I think people I've, I've, I've seen preachers use in the fear of God is just a way to manipulate <laughs> and um, you don't fear God sufficiently I remember I was in that boat as a young Christian I would hear sermons about the fear of God and the emphasis upon the fear of God and you know I come to church and sometimes there would be that sense of whoa God is an awesome God and I stand before him in the recognition of his almightiness and I have this sense of fear but sometimes I didn't have that sense and I would get on myself I think oh maybe that this means I don't really fear God because I'm looking for some kind of an emotional attitude that's rooted more in dread than delight but the fear of God for Jesus was delight the fear of God for us who are in Christ also should be delight because we're brought into the presence of God that's what we're here to do this morning is to come together into the presence of God and that's a delightful place to be it's not a place where we should walk out of here with our heads hung hung and our, our, our hearts overwhelmed just with the sense of our unworthiness and our sinfulness yes so we are unworthy and yes we are sinful but the gospel is all about our acceptance the gospel is all about the grounds upon which we are privileged to draw near and to know the delight and the fear of the Lord Okay. Sue? On the opposite side of that, I know people who, you know, become Christians and they say, I no longer have to have the dread of God. I just have to come before him as awesome. But the ladies studied that book in a church Bible study, group study, and I remember, you know, we got to the one part where it was like you said, even though we're saved, we come before a father and if we know we've done something wrong. Yeah, we still have that. We don't want to displease God, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think what I would emphasize is if people are saying, I don't have to fear God in the sense that I don't have to make moral distinctions between right and wrong, good and evil, I could send up a storm and just come before the Lord and say, you know, with some quick uh, uh, prayer of forgiveness and that just patches everything up real fine, uh, I'd say that's a, a kind of understanding of divine fear. Uh, that's a kind of a misunderstanding of the gospel that would bring you to that. But uh, again, I don't want to go to the other side of the coin and say, well, you know, uh, I, th- I think here, here's the problem the Puritans used to say that the work of the preacher was to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted and the problem is often when preachers try to do that it's always the um, afflicted that get afflicted further they're, they're not comforted because they're just uh, they take everything to heart they take uh, every aspect of their life before God to heart and they tend to be um, Oppressed when you, the preacher is actually after the other group of people to afflict them. It's better just not to try to come to a program of looking to afflict or comfort. Just preach the word. Just preach the word. 
when you preach the word, the word has its own um, quality assurance to make certain that every line of biblical truth is being sounded. And so, you know, I, I think that there are certain teachers in the church, names not mentioned, or um, they think, think that because we live in a world, in a Christian world, where there's lots of hypocrisy, and there's lots of false faith, and there's lots of um, people living double lives, that they think their mission is to go and get it, get that exposed, to root out every aspect of hypocrisy within the church. I never thought that to be my mission. <laughs> I never thought to be that's what the ministry of God's word was about. The ministry of the word of God is to preach the word of God. And if God sends arrows of conviction to someone's heart who's a hypocrite, then that's going to get that's going to happen. That's going to happen. I remember once I taught a when I was in the military, I taught um, on the subject of um, um, sanctification in a in a. Uh, the the the, the, um, the chapel had a, a Sunday school, and um, there was a Southern Baptist fellow who comes up to me and he says, uh, "You know that really convicted me. That really convicted me." And uh, I, I'm, I think I'm the kind of hypocrite you spoke you, you spoke of. And then I'm endeavoring to say, "Well, you know, it's good that our sins are exposed, and then we can run to the gospel. We can find hope and and, and cleansing and restoration in the Lord Jesus." And then he starts to tell me, "Well, I don't think you really understand what I'm telling you." And he begins to name all the sins that he was involved in, and I begin to realize, "Well, this is something a little bit more." Um, uh, serious than I thought. It's not just someone, you know, having the sense of his own, uh, uh, you know, things you have, you've left undone, uh, things that you've done that are, you know, you spoke a, a harsh word to your wife, or I mean, he was into some pretty heavy, uh, sinful patterns of addictive sinful patterns and drug use and all kinds of things the guy was doing. And I'm thinking, he's a kid from the Southern Baptist Church. How does he get involved with all of that? Well, again, if you're in a church that's not really preaching the whole counsel of God, um, people will think they're fine uh, even when they're into a whole uh, mess of sin. I mean, to me, this is, I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. This came to light in my understanding with such power when I began to binge watch old Dateline episodes. You know what I'm talking about, the NBC uh, show Dateline, that uh, it used to focus on news things, but now it focuses upon crime, criminal activities. And if you sat and binge watch Dateline, and um, you watched a dozen of those episodes, believe me, two or three at least, are crimes of murder done by ev professing evangelical Christians who met in church. Even a preacher who killed, who, who officiated at, at the funeral service of the guy he killed. He killed a guy in his church because he was fornicating with his wife. And then he preached the funeral service. How does this happen? Well, there's clearly an absence of the fear of God in churches. We've so made fun the hallmark of church life. Not the light in the Lord, but this aspect of fun. 
you know, we, we want to get to come to church and, and just have fun. You know, the, the, we want to be entertained. We want to hear great rock and music. We want to hear um, sermons that tell us how to have our, our best life now. And, and this is where the church is. And it's almost intentionally avoiding everything in Scripture that has any degree of um, you know, stuff that you can't put on a a Sunday, I'm sorry, on a, a weeknight uh, talk show. You, know, you want to have the talk show sort of thing. Um, you know, the preacher's the Johnny Carson or the. Um, why am I going back in the past? Not even Jay Leno. Who's the guy today? Um, Fallon. Yeah, okay. He's the guy on the Tonight Show now. Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon. That's the guy. And, and that's what the, the preacher's supposed to be like. He's supposed to be like that entertainer. Makes everybody feel at home. And that simply is just, um, it's lulled the church to sleep. It's lulled the, lulled the church to sleep. And it's, it's brought the church to think that it's more other issues that really define us as Christians. And so if I'm against abortion and I'm against uh, homosexuality, then, then, then I'm an evangelical. Uh, I'm a Christian. I believe the right things even though nobody's gotten close to your personal sins, <laughs> the things that you're involved in. And so, you know, you have Christians who have no problems with divorcing their, their spouses, no problems with, uh, I mean, the, the kind of thing that goes on. You know, back in the day, there was something called the satanic panic. You know, remember that? That supposedly the, the whole problem of uh, the world was that uh, uh, women were going to work and then sending their kids to daycare centers in which the children were being abused by Satan worshippers. And just how in the world you had all these daycare centers with, um, with um, Satan worshippers and, and performing rituals and sexually abusing the children. But there was a panic of these things that went into... People went to prison for this. Because these people took the kids and basically put memories in their brain that wasn't there before. Basically got them to tell a tale. And, you know, kids are impressionable that way. And there was some FBI agent that came on the scene and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How could all this... All the things these kids say were being done. How could it have been done? There was not time in the day for all these things to happen. There was no empirical proof that any of these things occurred. And um, there was no empirical proof that any of these people involved were Satan worshippers or abusers of children. But you know what's really come to light is it's not the daycare centers where children are abused in the homes. It's the very homes in which they're raised, where they've got a father or an uncle or some other male or female. Uh, sexual abuse, their big problem is in the homes. So, you know, people think, well, I'm on the right side of this thing about daycare centers and what goes on in my own home, none of your business. None of your business. And of course, when things began to happen with regard to sexual abuse being discovered in homes, in churches, among Christian workers, then the big cover-up began. And you see the thing that's happened in the Southern Baptist Convention with respect to that, where things were covered up. And it's just, again, where's the fear of God in all of this? Where, where is a sense of biblical 
morality, of, of, of values that are rooted in scripture, not just societal, but personal, individual, things that affect the family. Um, you know, we feel we can clear ourselves of all of that because we have the right politics, and it's just wrong. Vivian. Uh, I just wanted to go back to Tim's question. Sure. So your answer to that would be yes. Christ, as the third person of the Trinity, did have that fear of the Father in that sense of awe and wanting to please him and glorify him. Yes. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Okay. yeah, delighting in the fear of the Lord. But just none of that negative stuff about the fear of the Lord but a positive religious um, devotion and dedication to God that is what the fear of God consists in. Um, to where our greatest delight is to honor and please Him. Our greatest dread is to not honor Him and please Him. So that immediately takes out of our minds this cavalier attitude about sin that says on any that there are circumstances in which we don't really have to be distressed about sin. I mean, sin's a good thing to be distressed about because sin leads you to the go- leads you to the gospel. It leads you to the cross. It leads you to confess to, to confession. It leads to clearing. Um, you look at the Second Corinthians chapter seven. We didn't get there yet, but we will. In Second Corinthians chapter seven. Again, you had issues in the Corinthian church that the people in the church just simply weren't confronting because they were placing a value upon appearance rather than in fact. And uh, they figured they measured up in terms of appearance, but they were simply regard- disregarding uh, the deeper concerns. And um, much of that had to do with um, problems that they had with Paul, problems they had with Paul and other people in the church that led to... Um, they're failing to do what Paul told them to do. We don't know the details of this. And it's easy to go and say, well, it's the incestuous man of chapter of the first letter. But we're uncertain as to what the exact problems were. But um, Paul speaks about... Um, let's, let's begin to read in verse 5. He says, Even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fears within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And so you might think, well, man, Paul put a real uh, prominence upon his friends. Titus came and his spirit was lifted. And that certainly is something that can happen. A friend will come and your spirits will be lifted. But there's something even more. It is not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for us, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, he wrote them a letter, that grievous letter, that painful letter, he talks about the painful visit in chapter 2. He says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. thought maybe I shouldn't have written this because it didn't do any good. And eventually Paul had to leave because it wasn't benefiting the situation. He sent Titus on a mission to get this thing righted. And uh, where he was not successful, God blessed Titus and his ministry to the Corinthians. So he says, um, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, 
But because you were grieved into repentance, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief had produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you prove yourselves innocent in the matter. So they look to get it right. They look to get it right with God. They look to get it right with Titus. They look to get it right with Paul. They look to respond in a godly way, in a way in which it brought back the standards of God's word to address a problem that they were not willing to address. And it is often when we are not walking in the fear of God, when we're walking after our own counsel or we're walking after the approval of other people or we're walking after, well, we got this little group of people that think this is right and not that. Uh, we get involved in church politics. We get involved in our little click, uh, um, uh, click groups. But when we really stand in the presence of God, um, we'll have a sense of what the right thing is, what the good thing is, what the thing is that we need to do, how we need to get things right with God and right with others. Uh, again, so often it's in the heat of things that you, you, you think you're right, you think you're just, you think you're saying things that need to get said, and then you stand back for a minute and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, was I right? Was I tr- just? Uh, how am I weighing it? How am I understanding it? Am I understanding it just in terms of my own light or my own needs or just what benefits me? I'm understanding that interaction I had with that person in the light of God's, God's eye, God's face, God's words. And then you come to grips with the fact you need to make, the, make it right. You need to clear yourself. Story of my life. <laughs> the um, letters I had to write after I said things and did things I should never have said or done. Uh, the texts I've had to send out after I've just been so insensitive and so foolish. And all the while, when you're in the midst of the action, you, you, you tend to be justifying things. You, you think you're right, but again, it may, may well be you're just not walking in the fear of the Lord. You're not considering God at that moment. You're only considering yourself and your own interests, or the fact that you feel aggrieved by something or another. I can give dozens of examples, but to bring too many personal people into it. But... Um, This is a real challenge to us to walk in the fear of God. But again, I don't think it's by looking to place ourselves in some sort of an emotional frame where this is normative. Here, this is what you're supposed to feel. But it's bringing the eye of God into the matter and the word of God into the matter and then the response is appropriate. The appropriate response whence God is central to the matter. You you, you understand what I'm saying? So you want to fear God more consistently? Contemplate His presence. Contemplate His eye. Contemplate the reality of His words to you from from the scriptures in the situation that you're in. So consider the way that you spoke to your wife or your boss and then contemplate, well, what are my responsibilities before God to my wife? She didn't submit to me. (laughs) 
Yeah, but God didn't tell husbands, go make sure she submits. God says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You can't be considering the fact you've been aggrieved by the fact she didn't do it your way. You have to love her. You have to love her. And you have to lead with love. And when you bring it into the, uh, into the, into the reality of God's word regulating it and the, the eye of God governing your life, um, that really changes everything. So don't curse the deaf. Don't put a stumbling block before the blind. Because the Father up above, He is looking down in love. Be careful, little hands, little feet, little eyes, little ears, what you do, where you walk, what you say, what you hear. You all know that song, right? The little ditty? Okay, good, good. (laughs) Well, uh, good question, good question. Anything else uh, along these lines? Or else, something else? Yes, yes, Barbara, please. I'm sorry? Ecclesiastes. Ooh, Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Ecclesiastes. 311? Right. And, um, the birds. Yeah. Pete Seeger. <laughs> um, it was a couple of weeks ago that we were speaking about 3.11. And I'm really confused with the whole time thing because he has made everything beautiful in its time. Mm-hmm. Also, he has put the trinity into man's part. Well, actually, I don't think we can think in terms of time and God because uh, time is a created thing. God's created time-space, what we call the time-space continuum. And so he exists apart from all time. And, um, yeah, so, um, again, uh, does, God, does God have uh, morning and evening? Does he have night and day? Does, no. Does he have, um, uh, you know, a sense of succession of moments? No, he is. I am. I am, he says. Um, so I, again, we have no concept of what eternity is about. But God's placed eternity in our hearts. And uh, eternity, the, the, the concept of olam, uh, sometimes it can speak of, uh, of, of temporal things in terms of uh, from everlasting to everlasting. You know, we don't know, again. Uh, and sometimes it speaks of a spatial thing, of the heavens. Um, and I think the idea is that uh, what God's place in our heart is just never satisfied 
with the temporal things of this life. We have a time for joy. We have a time for um, sorrow. We have a time for all of these things. Um, And yet, as we go through all these different seasons and all these different times, there's always the sense there's something more. There's something more. There's something more that we need. There's something more that we um, always feel dissatisfied. I mean, I, I preached on this at a funeral. And the, and the time to die, you know, I tried to illustrate that in terms of the fact that it was at the funeral I found out that the woman who had died, um, they were playing the music she loved. And I'm standing there listening to the music she loved, thinking, this is the music I love. You know? Um, and they're singing all the words to the songs of the seekers and all the, you know, all the all the old bands from the '60s. And uh, I was amazed how many words of the songs I remember. And I'm thinking, well, boy, that's something I didn't know about her. What fruitful conversations we could have had if only I'd known that. But I don't know everything about people. I don't know what their experience is. Only have my experience. I don't have a vast wealth of. Uh, uh, but I always have a sense that something more is needed, something more is desired, something more is lacking. This woman is now taken from us, and someone who was at our dinner table at the holidays, and uh, she's not going to be there any longer. And we, and so there's a sense of, of more in the midst of the to- all the times of, of life, and um, uh, set something that's placed within our hearts uh, to make us seek for something more, something above. The writer of the Hebrews uses the language of the things that are done under the sun. The things that are done under the sun. And it speaks of this world reality. Um, And I think what God's done is he's given us to be exercised with these things that we might seek for something more. And that's what's above the sun. What's beyond this temporal order of things. That we might seek after him, I think, is the is what we actually come to at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, which interestingly enough gets back to the whole question of the fear of God. Because when you look at the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Ecclesiastes goes through a wrestling with all manner of things under the sun. And uh, in many things, it's unresolved. And many things, the best thing, the best thing is simply to just enjoy the fruit of your labors. Just, uh, you know, enjoy the barbecue tomorrow for the 4th of July. And, you know, just see the fireworks and just have pleasure in the things of this world. That's about all you can do. Um, but at the end of the matter, because there's always that yearning for something more, the heart is, is instilled with this sense of something bigger, something... Um, more lasting, something that doesn't uh, just end when death comes. There's something that is bigger and higher and broader. And uh, in verse uh, chapter 12 and verse 1, it's, re- it's to remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Uh, and then he goes on to speak of the um, um, process of aging, when you don't have pleasure in the things you used to have pleasure in, when you're not able to hear as you once heard or see as it speaks about the, the windows being dimmed, and I know about the windows being dimmed, right? Um, and the silver cord that's broken 
and, and all the rest. And um, the dust returns to the earth in verse 7, and the spirit uh, returns to the God who, who gave it. Um, and he says, Vanity, vanities, all is vanity. But then you go down a little bit more into verse 13, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is, and the ESV translates it, the whole duty of man. But actually, the word duty is not found in the original. It's the whole of man, the whole of mankind, the whole of humanity, and human existence upon the earth. The whole of our reason for being, the whole of our existence, and what it's for is to bring us to this final conclusion. To fear God and to keep His commandments, this is the reason for our being. This is a, the, the raison d'etre, is the French term it. The reason for our existence is to fear God and to keep His commandments. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the book of Ecclesiastes is not about skepticism. It's not about that there's nothing that is finally to be resolved as to meaning and purpose in life. There is meaning and purpose in life as we wrestle with the seemingly incongruity of life. The seeming meaninglessness of life that sometimes is how things appear under the sun. But suddenly again you bring God into the picture you realize there's something greater and something bigger. And so I think that whole matter of God putting eternity in our hearts is to bring us to the place where there's nothing in this world that is ultimately going to satisfy us besides God or apart from God. I think Jesus spoke to the issue when he says, what will it profit a man if he gained the whole world, (laughs) everything under the sun, if he gains it all and loses his own life? Or... The nephesh, the, I'm sorry, nephesh is Hebrew, the, the suke, the, the soul, the soul. Um, we're made for something more. Life is more than food and raiment, Jesus says. Um, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things we possess. Life is more, and I think that's what Ecclesiastes 3 is talking about. Okay? Yes? So at the end part of the verse that Barbara mentioned, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, being finite and the creature of the Creator, we don't totally, we can't, like you said, we can't see the everlasting, the eternity part of mm-hmm. God. And, but he's put that eternity in our hearts, that need for something more. That our hearts might come to rest in the reality of the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, but we're not. We're finite, but we aspire to something more. Yeah, so we find our, again, we find our meaning in Him. Fear God and keep His commandments. We find a reason for being in Him. Things begin to make sense in the midst of what seems irrational. That there is rhyme, there is reason, there is truth, there is objective reality. Even though there are people that live in this life and they just deny it, it's so. And, um, because they wrestle with the same thing that the preacher is wrestling with in the book of Ecclesiastes but they come to the wrong conclusion because they never somehow they don't get to chapter 12 and verse uh, verse uh, 13 <laughs> there is an end to the matter there is a final conclusion there is something truly to learn 
and uh, that life has meaning but it's because we know our maker we know our creator know your creator in the days of your youth and then the life that we live in this world will begin to make sense not that it, not that we'll avoid heart, heartbreak not that we'll avoid the troubles that life in this world will bring in the world you will have tribulation yet Jesus says fear not I've overcome the world so yeah. again it's a question of fear, the fear of God and, and that's the unifying theme of the things we've spoken of this morning is um, you know fear of God brings a sense into the midst of a world that seems like it's creening out of control and we just don't see where sense lies but we turn back to God and we find sense and meaning in the God who is the eternal God and we, and, and we are not eternal but he's put eternity in our hearts kind of like the idea that Augustine said that uh, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you I think that rest that Augustine is talking about is not uh, is not immobility it's not uh, rest and sleep it's rest and active energetic uh, service uh, to the Lord finding real meaning in life in relationship to God so uh, sometimes I think people think of that find rest in you in terms of active uh, uh, more passive uh, thing, but it's, I think it's a more active thing. The idea of a Sabbath rest is not just the things you don't do, it's the things you do. It's the things we're called upon to do. It's actively, energetically engaging in God's worship and service and approaching Him uh, um, uh, together with His people. So it's not inactivity, it's some of the most strenuous of activities imaginable, at least mentally so, I think. I hope some of this has been edifying and helpful. Our time is gone, so let's turn to the Lord and look to, look to Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful we can be a people that live before Your face. That we can be a people that know that Your face is not against us, not turned away from us, but Your face is towards us. I think of the high priestly prayer that the priests would pray in the Old Testament. Uh, may the Lord... Uh, protect you, defend you. May he make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. We pray even this day we would know your face to shine upon us and that we would walk in your light even as you're in the light. We would walk in the truth. We would walk in a fashion that would please and honor your great and holy name. We're thankful, Father, for this time together in the word. Pray your blessing would be upon the things we've considered from the scriptures. Give us understanding in these texts that we've looked at. And we pray that your great name would be honored in us and through us. Meet with us as we fellowship with one another, as we enter into the morning hour of worship. Shed light upon your truth as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.